Hello and welcome to season two of Leaked Lunch, the fly on the wall podcast that brings you to the dining table with me, Isabella Kaminska. In this edition, I sat down with finance and banking expert Hugh Van Stienis at La Brasseria in Notting Hill. These days, Hugh wears many hats, including that of co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Financial Services. And in fact, he had just come back from this year's conference in Davos when we sat down for breakfast. But it's in his former role as a special advisor to then Bank of England Governor Mark Carney on the long-term future of the financial system that Hugh really got stuck into the thorny topic of central bank digital currencies as well as digital financial transformation. Given mounting speculation that the UK is on the verge of launching a CBDC project of its own, I wanted to get Hugh's thoughts on the viability of what they are calling Britcoin. I was surprised to learn he had actually advised the bank against going down that route. But we didn't just chat fintech, blockchain and financial inclusion. We also touched upon the global economic picture, the BRICS challenge against the dollar, the underperformance of ESG funds in 2022, and what can be done to improve global productivity. The bill for the breakfast came to £75.33. Now a quick shout out to the Peer for Peer Foundation for making this podcast possible. Enjoy the recording. We are in La Brasseria uh, in Labrook Grove and I'm joined by Hugh Van Stienis, who has many hats these days. I, I, I never know how to describe you, Hugh, because you, you're, you're kind of popping around everywhere. What's your official uh, title these days? Well, Isabella, thanks for having me for breakfast. Uh, so my main gig is that I'm vice chair at Oliver Wyman. Right. Uh, but, you know, I'm still an investment analyst at heart and so I'm the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund have very kindly asked me to join their climate advisory board. Right. And I guess I've spent more and more time, you know, getting interested in the intersection between sort of finance and climate. And you've obviously also just come back from Davos, because you're a co-chair of one of the WEF panels, uh, uh, or what, <laughs> investing what, committees or whatever. Oh, funny, yeah, so, so, yeah, so just come back. So, um, I've, uh, uh, in the, in the old days, the yeah. Davos had councils to try and work out what should be yeah. on the agenda. Uh-huh. So I've been on what used to be called the agenda councils. Now it's now been rebranded as future councils oh, that's for financial services, ah. which is interesting. But it's a nice bunch of cent- mixture of central bankers, uh, payment spoke investors. It's a really interesting group. Right. Well, so here we are at La Brasseria, and it's not technically a lunch this time. It's a it's a breakfast. But I think we won't we won't we won't. Um, we won't mind about that small discrepancy. Um, so, what are you going to have? Um, I'm pretty. Bo- I'm pretty boring. I'm. I to say egg and egg and avocado. I'm afraid, if that's okay. That, that sounds good to me. Um. I am going to join you with that. I think Italian, Italian American eggs, all the eggs, <coughs> all the eggs, eggs Benedict. So I'm, I'm. I was recording one of these yesterday, and one fatal error was ordering. Um, Scr- uh, scratch, what was it? Um, the, the, sorry, <laughs> yeah. what is it called? Uh, pork scratching. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, don't, 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 don't order that when you're doing a podcast because it's very bad. <laughs> crunchy. Yeah. Um, so go ahead, Pew. Yeah, um, could I get um, avocado and uh, boiled eggs? But can I get well, well done? 
Uh, but with, with, with eggs, but well, well done. One twice. Sorry? One or twice. Oh, one is fine, please. Right. Well um, and can I get a macchiato with almond milk, please? Mm, single macchiato. Two. I'll have the eggs Benedict yes. and a Americano yes. and black with no, uh, no milk, no uh, sugar. And also, can I have a orange juice? Okay. Thank you. Just for the check, eggs Benedict is in That's fine. Okay. Perfect. Thank you very much. Really? No, you can have it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, indeed. So, because there's so much to talk to you about, and we get, I guess we've got about an hour and a half. Um, where should we start? Like, given that you've just come back from Davos, yeah. I thought maybe we'd start with that because um, Davos is getting a lot of attention, and um, I just wanted what what is the mood like from the inside? What was it? Because I read your uh, synopsis of it, and, yeah. it, and and I thought it matched what I heard Larry Summers saying. That there's a lot of ambiguity with respect to, you know, what the future is going to bring us. Well, look, so I, I give you the mood, but I thought on the way back, I bumped into Neil Ferguson, had a great line that, you know, uh, Davos is like a, a bazaar where everyone's hawking their views and wares. And so asking the mood of Davos is a bit like asking <laughs> the mood of the souk in Marrakesh. There's, yeah. there's multiple views. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, if it's a good day or a bad day, we know. So I think you can feel the pulse of business. Look, uh, I think the mood was of relief. Uh, but one with a lot of giddiness about and uncertainty about the future. And obviously, as you've spoken about heaps, and maybe not with Nouriel, but with everyone else, there is a lot of relief. Europe didn't fall into recession so thus far. Um, it's, you know, Europe got lucky on, the, on, on just being a warm winter. China reopening, inflation abating. So there's a bunch of reasons to be more optimistic. But you kind of, I always feel with Davos, the last three months of markets yeah. tell you what the mood's going to be. The more interesting is like one-on-one, -on -one, how people really feel about the pulse of lots of businesses. So do you think people were surprised that things hadn't, I mean, that recession was avoided to the degree it was? Because it felt very much like every panel I was watching, oh, we thought it was going to be much worse. So the, the, how, why are they always getting it wrong? Why, so they thought it was going to be much better and then turned out inflationary and, and, and at, you know disaster zone. Um, for much of 2022, obviously Putin and, and, and Russia didn't help, um, but now they overestimated the doom. So why are they always getting it just that bit wrong? Well, so uh, I mean, so I think first, it, you know, like any con any convention conference, yeah. it's always a bit of a consensus call, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's looking what has happened rather than what is happening. And of course, let's be, let's be honest, last through May through last October, the market was pretty doom and gloomy about inflation, about rates, about China and so forth. So I think in some, was it Keynes has that lovely line that every politician is beholden to a defunct economist. In the same way, businesses think about what they've been going through. And so it's natural there's been that relief that the winter wasn't anywhere near as bad. Yeah. And of course, part of the reason this time of year, as you know, Isabella, is that most people do their budgets between September yes. and December. And so when they were budgeting, they were pretty gloomy. And actually what they've seen is the outturn has been, I mean, okay, I mean, let's be clear, there are some businesses which are struggling, but it's not been as bad as feared. Maybe with one exception of the tech firms, where they all, you know, thought, you know, the growth from the pandemic went to their heads and they thought that was for infinity. And actually really what was happening was it was pulling forward future growth rather than changing the shape dramatically. But you know, I think it's, it's partly consensus. Um, I think consensus is kind of what's been fun to my career being an investment analyst, just consensus is quite, some of the time it's right, but then the interesting time is when it's wrong and what you poke away at it. So who, who was the most non-consensus at Davos this year? Like who was saying the stuff that, you know, was really on the fringe? 
Oh gosh. Um, on the official panels, less so. I mean, look, most of it was around in, in the more private panels, dinners, yeah. where it's about, you know, look, so, you know, I think the consensus view is that China reopening is somewhat inflationary, but it actually, could it actually be deflationary because, because supply you, the supply chain gets unlocked? Yeah. I think that's interesting. Certainly a lot of the Asians who are closer to it were, maybe they're hoping, but they were wondering whether it's more deflate or deflation or at least neutral. Um, look, I think the other thing was, um, look, as we went into Davos the last two weeks, people were buying tech stocks again. One of my smartest investors I know who's been in this business for decades is still quite cautious about tech. You know, even though the valuations come off a long way, is there a, could this be, could there be a second wave of monetary tightening, in which case they have another leg down? Could this be like NASDAQ 0102, where you had another two, three consecutive years of double digit falls? So there's a real kind of nervousness out there that it might be a bit too early. Yes. Um, so, I mean, this is a good, good moment to pivot into because you've obviously spent a lot of time looking at financial technology yeah so how did you find yourself doing financial tech like how did you end up uh, an expert in that area um so uh so after my, my first job after uni i uh i did one of these classics of two-year gravy you know gravy tours around yeah. at chris we first boston we had to do six months in every tour and uh I went to work in New York with, um, doing you know, um, bonds for, for Caribbean countries and non-US issues to the US. So at which point CS was, CSFP was a great house. And one of the, uh, um, the person I was working for just said, look, you, know, you need to be an expert in something. Right. And because that's the way you'll tunnel through it more quickly. Uh, so actually I went to business school but, um, and then from there just very quickly got really focused into financial services and um i just i, I got like, like most things in life it's a bit of hard work and a bit of luck um uh, this was the time when all the online brokers were starting to pick up the head of steam they're a bit too small for anyone else to really be interested in so i started covering all these little funny ex the first stock exchange to ipo the first um uh you know online broker to ipo and then got you know got hooked um and i think like most careers in the city there's a mixture of you know, are you doing it because you've got something to prove? Are you doing it because you're like problem solving? Are you doing it because you just want to make money? I mean, I, I hope it was, I came at it first from the problem solving and I just thought it was a really interesting set of problems from there. Yes, I, I was reading your wiki bio and and there's a nice quote from Andrew Hilton in there saying you're one of the most regard, re, I don't want, I'm not going to say it verbatim, but highly regarded sort of um, authorities on the topic, uh, which is great because we're interviewing Andrew Hilton to, uh, on Thursday. Wonderful, we'll send him very But um, I, so the fintech space is because like, I've obviously covered it for about maybe 10, 15 years now, but um, it really exploded in 2015, I yep. would say, um, especially this new genre of crypto, blockchain, DLT stuff. Um, one of the things you wrote in your assessment from Davos is that you felt that finally there might be some waning um, interest in this phenomenon. Yeah. So talk us through, A, why that is, why you think that is, but also how, um, how you you know the how you've experienced this whole blockchain phenomenon because I'm I'm very interested. In, I, I've been quite a critic of it for a long time, but you you know we I would say you're you're crypto curious. Is that a fair? Well, not yeah, crypto, I, but like blockchain curious. And uh, look, like, so I think I was curious some years ago when you're just doing the work because you always want to understand what on earth's going on here. Yeah. Um, the fact we're this many years on and there's very 
there's so few successful projects to speak of, as I think you've written, you've written about brilliantly as well, is there. So, you know, I think you penned some the other day, let's say the Australian Stock Exchange just right. wrote down quarter billion dollars on yeah. their back office. That's um, it, our food is just got Thank you, can I see it? And that's your one. This one, perfect. Yeah. Orange juice for me. That's for me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no, look, so here we are years on, and there's no substantive projects. Now, there are pilots still ongoing, but you know, um, the budgets simply aren't there to radically change the world from scratch. You know, and I think if you think about the large banks of financials, um, there's real interest in yeah. smart contracts, blah, blah, blah. But where we're going. Look, so so I think um, what I took away from my meeting meetings with the central bankers is that that rage for central bank digital currencies, which is third on what, 91 central banks around the world to do right. the projects, that FOMO that they're missing out on crypto is certainly eroding. They're getting much more worried also about just the fact that the pilots we do have, um, this is Bahamas, there's a great piece by the London School of Economics just showed that uh, two years ago it peaked and it hasn't really been used since. That's the same um, dollar, right? Exactly, and that's probably been out for the longest time. So, I mean, I think the, on one level in, and just to be honest, in finance, we've just got to go back to basics. What are we trying to prove? What are we trying to achieve? But why do you think that so many central banks got, like, excited by it and, and, you know, invested in all these inquiries and proof of concepts? So obviously, for listeners who don't know, uh, who spent, I'm not sure how many years, I, I didn't, um, check on how long you were doing the advisory role to um, Mark Carney on the future of financial so what was the official head of um, well, so, future so, finance? So, so uh, the, the governor very kindly asked me in his final year yeah. to come and help help work on um, a report about future finance and what, it, what the implications were for the bank. Right. And in a way, the, the genesis was that Brexit, if I'm allowed to use them, I mentioned the word once at this morning. At you know, breakfast. At breakfast. Brexit um, and breakfast. Had that meant that all the senior talents of the bank had to focus on yeah. that as the urgent and important problem of the day. And a lot of the desire to think about the future agenda, whether it be the climate strike, the climate work yeah. that Marcus championed, or it's the or, or, or fintech work, got derailed. And so I, was, I had a brief to sort of look at that area. And um, I'm afraid and I didn't. And I didn't. That? that was a 2018, 2019. So in the end, I'm afraid I didn't recommend a CBDC. But that's partly because the bank itself was updating its core banking system, yeah. which was the largest IT project in the history of the Bank of England, even inflation adjusted. So it was a they were busy, but two, just trying to think, are there other ways, if the objective is to have cheaper cross-border payments or more inclusive financial system, is this really the best way to do it? So we went, we tried to go back to basics about what what you could achieve by what, what tools. But the problem with the CBDCs is that, um, so you asked the question about why did they get all so panicked? Why 91 banks are looking at it? I think it's because the threat at first was a more disintermediated system and one in which the big techs had more power. And I think that, that the peak was the Libra? peak. It, Libra, yeah, tipped the balance. Yeah. And you know, if you spent time with them, you realised that they hadn't really thought it through, but they had enough money you thought they might get good people to, to think it through. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, in the end, that, that <laughs> for a variety of reasons, they got, uh, yeah, they, they just they didn't nail it for all sorts of good reasons. I mean, um, but they, obviously that threat of Libra was the total stack of identification, payment rails, 
uh, and so forth. I think that's what the threat was. And of course, as Libra imploded, it's almost been more surprising that the CB that they held a talk to the CBDCs. I mean, being on the like inside a little bit at, at the central bank. I mean, can you tell us like a little bit about the general mood and, and attitude towards crypto and blockchain? So that, I, we, we need to separate those two because obviously crypto is very different to blockchain. But do, would you say it's like the younger people who are more enthusiastic about it? Was there pressure like um, within the with? I mean, not just at the Bank of England. Like, do do you feel that there is pressure coming from the, sort of the bottom up, or um, the FOMO is happening just because managing consultants are telling people X? What is you know? I'm trying to get to the number of the. Um, oh, wow! That's, Wonderful. That Thank is, you. Uh, awesome. The other way around. Other way Thank around. you. I've got a Thank you very much indeed. Huge uh, expending. Thank you very much. Very healthy avocado yes, egg. That looks nice. Uh, after my virtual muesli last week. Um, Take a picture. So, yeah, please, please do. Yeah. Um, so what's what's driving what? Look, I think it's. I think there's a very. So, so first is there's a, 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 a very decent sort of fundamental, which is like if there's new technology, you want to keep your finger on the pulse. Right. So central banks talk about horizon scanning. Is this ah, something that they should? This this is this something they should worry about? Because you know, at the end at the end of the day, I mean, even in my brief time in financial services, there's you know, technology has been transformed. I mean, I remember going from the time I first sat on the Morgan Stanley trading desk, research analyst, but sort of sitting, walking the trading desk to, to I left. There was a 20-fold increase in transactions, but with fewer people. Yes. So, you know, there's, so there's a, you know, tech, one has to have a, a real respect for what technology can achieve in financial services. But I think here with more horizon scanning, is this something that could disrupt? If so, what do we need to do? So which... um, and obviously there are a few other, I think in the emerging markets, there are, I mean, the Singaporeans have done some good work thinking, could this help with remittances? Yeah. But no, look, you know, but, but I think what do you know what it really discovered is that when you think about what are the blockages in, or what, what, why is it more expensive to do cross-border payments between the, the second and third league points? Yeah. It's mostly the quality of the information. It's the reconciliation. So am I sending it to Isabella Kamiska? Is it Miss, Miss, or is it Mr, or is it this IA, you know, the initials? It's conventions yeah. around messaging standards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I want to ask at this point, though, which of the central banks, from your opinion, got went too far with it and or in your opinion has um, been captured a little bit too much by the uh, by the blockchain narrative for its own good so, so I so I think it's really interesting so can I answer this in the negative I think it's been very striking to me how Norway which is probably the most dematerialized yeah, cashless society on earth has not really wanted to play in the CBDC waters and some of that and I think as well we've talked about before is that the um, Norwegians actually had the world's first central bank digital currency way back yes, yes. way 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 back um, and you know this was the avant card where you it's like a prepayment a, a store card yeah. where you could pay and at the time if you read the speeches you know and Alex Grimm who's a, an economist who studied this has a great piece saying they really thought this was the future of money yes and you know it had a good start you could pay for your traffic you know your uh, parking meter um, you could pay for a few shops but within a few years the credit cards caught up it became cumbersome. They needed to cover the cost of the system, right. which is a key issue, which we both know with um, with, I... with the cryptos. Um, and so they started charging for inflows and outflows, you know, reloading your card. Guess what? It imploded. Within six years, it was sold and, and, and it closed down. And so it's, it reminds you, you know, number one, 
the central banks can't do retail. They simply can't do retail. No, they shouldn't, I don't think. I don't Absolutely. think it's their business. I don't think... I mean, they're not customer-facing institutions. And if they, you know, as you know, I've long now argued that if they become customer-facing institutions, they go down the cost bank route and crowd out competition. And, and I don't think that's a healthy. In the old days, there were a handful of employees at, say, the Banque de France or uh, the Bank of England who would have their own special checkbooks. But that got phased out about 20 years ago. Right, In right. fact, a, a friend of mine who's, the, um, who's been the CEO of the Vatican Bank, when he arrived, um, tried, to, tried to get rid of it um, during, and you'll know this as well, um, during um, uh, you know, JP2, mm -hmm. um, to try and funnel money to uh, the Polish resistance, yes. uh, you know, it's, um, uh, solidarity. He allowed a bank account to be opened by, you didn't have to have a church or a diocese to open a bank account, and that was the way they funneled money through the back door. Oh, of course, yeah. as a result, you can imagine that um, the mafia cottoned onto this. And so anything so, that can be used for virtue can also be used for vice. Yeah, and, voilà. and that's the paradox at the heart of all finance and any open system. That's fascinating. I have, so I, but anyway, so anyway, the, yeah, the bottom line is that so, um, the CEO, who's a wonderful uh, uh, man, then just said, well, look, I want to close down these accounts. The rule is, unless you have a diocese, you can't have an account. <laughs> he got... And sadly, dozens of death threats. Uh, but he kept following through on it because he's a he's the right. He wasn't, and obviously, there's the God's banker precedent out there. So I guess that must have been a bit scary. Yeah. Anyway, so they shouldn't. I think there's another reason why central banks shouldn't do retail. Yeah, no, exactly. But that's really interesting um, because I think it speaks of the um, two-sided nature of open systems. Yeah. And I. What what do you think actually is the worst conspiracy theory going around about CBDCs? Because I get a little bit frustrated. It's, it's taken off on another level now. I don't know if, you, if yeah. you've been following it. Yeah. Because there is this perception that it's going to be used to uh, control people's spending, and you know, what, do you think that's have you noticed that paradigm? And I, whenever I speak to central bankers, I always say, look, whether you like it or not, this is the perception on the ground. People people are very concerned about it, which is why. If you are going to go down the pathway of the CBC, you really need to engage with people because okay. if you don't, you're going to it's going to you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. So, so look, I think that's right. So uh, look, the ECB did a survey, um, I think just before last year, which sort of said like, what are you most worried? What would you want to have CBC? And obviously, privacy was the number one concern. Mm -hmm. And so look, this it's, it's very deep. And I think, you know, look, I've seen like you, the concerns about, well, we have Chinese social scoring and so forth. Look, I think it's, it's mixed money, it's, it's mixed up a whole bunch of different issues with money. Um, national sovereignty is a huge one. In Europe, there is a genuine nervousness that the large payment networks are all American, and therefore, what's that mean for our Europe? Now, that's not quite true because some of the debit networks aren't. But certainly on the credit side, that's true. Actually, that's, I, I, that's and I think that's probably more, more fundamental. What in an era of national sovereignty and energy security and so forth, actually, I think that's a that's a legitimate concern. So I think that's. A, I'd like to explore that a little bit more because um, so the ECB, I think, is one of the most um, open-minded to CBDCs at the moment. Um, certainly, in terms of. Um, I don't know where they are in their current sort of research but, or deployment, but they seem to be the most um, pro the idea. And the driver seems to be this idea of sovereignty. Like, and and it, it seems strange to me. And I ended up at some function sitting next to 
a prominent banking CEO and not realizing I was sitting next to a prominent banking CEO and we were talking about retail payments and and CBDCs and I was saying well I don't really understand the, the reason for the ECB to like push ahead because retail retail payments are they're already pretty frictionless and the whole point of the euro was to enable you know, cross-border transactions and everything was really simple. And he was going, no, 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 because actually on, on, on the ground level, you can't use a cart banker in, you know, Spain or in, you know, Germany. Um, and I was like, that doesn't make sense to me because I, as a Brit, can travel all across Europe and I can just use my Apple Pay anywhere. There's no technical issue. Um, and he didn't believe me that I would, I, that it was that easy. So I showed him my thing. And, um, and then I realized where we were conflicting was that, Obviously, I was. A, it was an Apple Pay system, and yeah, for the exactly. Europeans, that is not tantamount to a frictionless retail system. They want one where they can control it at their sovereign level. Is that is that the understand? Is that a fair understanding? Well, look. So um, why else? Like, if you can achieve the same frictionless sort of service with a Apple Pay or a Visa or a Mastercard system, what is the reason to build your own European CBDC? Okay, so I'll try and answer it. Let's take one step back. So when I worked for uh, you know Mark, uh, one of his uh, one of his lines was, um, "Central Bank should be a platform for innovation." And it's fair to say, if you look through the last. 100 years for the Fed or for longer for some of the European central banks, at the heart of sort of big inflections, they have been there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, last bank, until Northern Rock, the last banking crisis in the UK was 1866, so Mary Poppins, you know, the run on the you know, Overland Gurney. And it was actually the banking laws which were passed then which allowed them to, to actually then gain control of the financial system again. So, you know, there is a, there is a sort of a history of, of, of innovation. And of course, you just think about the debit card revolution of the 70s and 80s and 90s, again, the central banks were critical to that. So I think it's legitimate to say, what's my role in the new kit and what role do I play and what does the private sector play? But importantly, as you update your systems, the private sector can then innovate on top. So, that, and there are, you know, faster payments is clearly something which the central banks did in tandem with the private sector, yeah. but without them it wouldn't work. So I think it's legitimate to say, like, what do we need to do to try and solve the problem? Where you, Britain, brilliantly, Isabella, is what problem are we trying to solve? And is this a kind of a hammer to, you know, is this the, is this the right solution? Or can you get it there another way? Yeah. And I think that's where, so I think, you know, is blockchain the right way to solve national sovereignty? Clearly not. Clearly not. <laughs> but, you know, at least it doesn't appear, there's no evidence suggests at the moment it is. But, you know, you, you know, I can see that having a more integrated system, you know, great, better protocols between banking systems, that makes well, sense. Standardization and, you know, building cross-border conventions is always going to be a great idea. But I'm just wondering, like, in terms of CBDCs, that what I'm finding, and I'd be interested in your view, is that the more the, um, you know, the committee's trying to um, push CBDCs, um, try to overcome the paradoxes, the problems, the privacy issues, or the crowding out, you know, or, you know, oh, we're going to let the banks um, be the wallet providers, you know, yep. the more they overcome those hurdles, the more they just revert to the old system. Like, it, it seems to be, you know, Every solution to the problems they're creating and um, trying to solve just brings us back to where but, we are. But do you know, it's, it's, I'll, I'll try and give you an answer, but, but uh, I think this, when you pose the question, like, 
throughout the entire banking system, we've got dependencies on major players. Right. So for a long while, IBM dominated main, you know, mainframe banking, mm -hmm. had over a 60% market share of all banking, it, of all major banks had to use their systems. Mm. Well, did we then go and regulate IBM as a systemic IT provider? And clearly we didn't. Obviously now we're moving to more, we've already already a long way through the move into cloud. And the central banks were also nervous about dependency upon cloud. And again, a handful, basically just four large US players. Yeah. Now, I think the pandemic proved that actually the resilience and functionality was more important. Yeah. But, you know, let's say take the Swiss, their response to cloud was, we at least want the cloud in the Swiss legal domain and actually have something onshore which we can go and kick the tires off. Mm. And this is this ch constant challenge about, is it physical regulation or do you allow someone to have that oversight? So I think it's not just um, the blockchain layer, it's, it's throughout all parts of banking, central banks are thinking, what's the resilience of the system and if we, who would we go and talk to if it, it fell down? So I think that's I think that, that which I think is a fair critique. If you're if you're at the end of the day worried about financial stability, yeah, no. thinking about dependencies there. I don't I, I think it's perfectly fair for the um, central banks to continuously try and improve um, just notice your egg isn't very runny. No, no. They've no. undercooked your egg. But never mind. Mine's, I asked for it, I, I, I asked for it Oh you did, that's fine, that's fine. Oh mine's definitely compensated on it. <laughs> um so I but I still think there is this weird sort of evolution which like ends up some of these problems are inherent, like the privacy one is one that I go on about because yeah. it just seems to me that you cannot solve that problem without becoming um, well if, if, you know when I speak to people at the BIS or somewhere like that that their rationale for a CBDC is well we want a universal public good cash good right everyone cash used to be that good it's being disrupted yep. the unbanked deserve access to digital payments yep. but as soon as you account for that you realize well that means banking criminals and all sorts of like people that we generally freeze out of the banking system. So then the solution is well, tiers. We can do tiers, so we can allow for like a certain amount of payments can go through without any uh, ID. Yeah. But even then, um, you're you know criminals are very innovative. So yeah. you have you know like from like on Twitter with spam bots, you get scaling through just mass congregation of many accounts, and when you you know, we uh, Alpha and the FT covered Wirecard, some yeah, of the yeah, most yeah. innovative ways, you know, they came up with very innovative ways to get around those sorts of issues. So um, I'm not convinced that that is in and of itself a, um, a panacea for the problem. And once you add all this tiering stuff, it becomes very subjective. Like, what is the level? Who gets an account? Like, is it going to be residents? What about tourists? Like, you know, so how do we overcome all these, you know, paradoxes? So if, you, if we hypothetically have a CBC in the current framework, would it be offered to anyone in the world? So Nigeria obviously had a is one of one of the countries that's moved ahead with it. Yeah. But you have to be a Nigerian citizen to, to use it, right? So I can't use Nigerian Nero account. Um, although I don't think it's been picked up very very much because I think the distrust over there is quite high. So in the banking system, in the central banking system, um, it's a good example of. You can bring the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So look, so uh, look, uh, uh, so I, I share I share your skepticism, and uh, uh, but but let's turn us ahead. So yes, number, right. you know you know you know number one, I think from my conversations, at least with some of the central bankers, the work they've done about what on earth is this CBD thing, 
you know, as a big concept, trying to break it down into what, you know, in reality, what version we could be doing. It's at least help them think through where the blockages are. And I, th I promise you, so a lot of um, central banks operated their messaging standards. So you think I, so the exercise it, itself it, it, has helped? I think it, it created the realisation that actually quite simple plumbing changes the plumbing right, right. can actually go an awfully long way. So I think point one, it has actually flushed out some, some ways to improve. It's made people realise we need to constantly make the current system safer, cheaper, better. Yeah. Number two, in the, in, in, in the Western countries, there's this big issue about the future of cash. Yeah. And so, you know, what you if you go and talk to Stefan Ingves, who's obviously stepping down as the central bank governor of Sweden, um, it'd say, look, they probably allowed the infrastructure for cash to run down too quickly. Yeah. And because most of the cash infrastructure, it's not the central bank, it's actually the private sector. And it's normally, yeah, I think in the UK, there's four players who take cash around the country. In an ideal world, you'd say we should have one utility which keeps cash, a minimum viable infrastructure for cash, so yes. that people who want to use it, or, or for whatever reasons, could be they it habits or, or they feel disadvantaged, given everyone has a right to be a member of the, you know, access to money is access to the economy, we should have a minimum viable structure. So yes. let's say the Dutch and the Norwegians then created a utility mm -hmm. for cash distribution. Right. So I think that the pennies dropped that the minimal viable infrastructure is there. Now, antitrust rules means you can't change it in every market. But that's, so I think there's been some useful stuff which has come of it. But honestly, there's a lot of wastage. As we can saw with the Australian exchange, what? there's been an awful lot of wastage too. And that's true for the whole tech sector, isn't it though? There's a huge amount of wastage from free money. So why, why do you think, so something like the ASX, obviously, that was a, a project that has gone nowhere in the long run. But it was hyped up to the nth degree and do you think the media played a role in, like, I mean, is there a bit of a feedback circle where, you know, new new technology that isn't is unproven gets out, the media goes crazy for it, then the managing consultants pick it up because there is um, you have to be seen doing something new and innovative, um, and we overrate the pudding, and then before we know it, like, egg on our face. Like, is that is that the pattern of events that happened with ASX, or do you think hubris? What, what is, um, ASX needed to change its infrastructure. So, right? so, so I, I mean, look, you're, you're definitely look. It's better, you, and this is beyond the influential services. There's definitely a hype cycle that we'll all recognise, and obviously, there's been a lot of fake it till you make it coming through. What was, and I don't want to be pejorative about it, but you know, but what was curious about that is if I think about the time I spent with Thank you. Could I get one more Yeah, sure. And my back as well, please. Thank you. What was curious is that. Central bankers, whilst might want a horizon scan, yeah. rarely bring in technology until it's proven in the private sector. Yes. Because the tolerance for mistakes yeah. in all public sector is, is low. Mm. But in, in terms of in payments, it rightly it has to be 99.9% working. Yes. So what was curious Mission about AS, critical. Mission critical, yes. Yeah. So you need you know you need to be proven in the private sector. And that's why in a way, you know, cloud now is, therefore it's now being brought in for everything, you know. The, um, what was really curious about something like a settlement system in Australia is to then, which is mission critical for the Australian Stock Exchange, to use unproven technology. That was the bizarre thing. So in a way, the decision, I mean, I get it wasn't in the room, so we don't know what they went through, but, but um, they were, um, as, uh, as Humphrey, as uh, the yes would say, they were very brave. <laughs>
they were very brave. Um, yeah, and, and I think what was sad also was that they haven't, I mean, obviously now it's become self-evident, but the rumors were going around for ages, and so they, they clung on, it seems to me, for a very long time, um, rather than fighting the bullet and, and, and admitting that it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, well, they had a new CEO, and so that obviously has changed the situation. But, you know, let's be clear, if you look to all the major card companies, they've also done project experiments too. I mean, I think it was a kind of, I mean, it's the classic sort of thing. Why would you spend like, why would you spend half a percent of your money just just in case there is a radical new technology out there which might might you know impact your core business? It seems legitimate to do that. What's odd is then actually going go through with it. Yeah, I mean, everyone needs R and D, and everyone needs to keep innovating. Um, so I get it, but um, but I also think that in the case of blockchain, there was some obvious like issues, and and it seemed to me that the the real IT professionals were very critical about it, and a lot of the hype was coming from people who don't even code and managing consultants. And not that I have an issue with managing consultants. So can, so can I can I take it? Speak up for the no, managing no, consultants. No, no. No, no, no. I'm going, to, I'm going to take a slightly different direction, which is, I think the biggest story of financial services is how tech has changed the economics of financial services. Oh, interesting. So um, clearly, for all intermediaries, margins collapsed have yeah. collapsed, and I think that the kind of uh, the winner. T- so what's been really interesting about financial services is that in most sectors, the uh, tech sectors, there's a winner takes most. Yes. The top two or three players make dramatically more than everyone else. And I think that as tech has wave upon wave of tech come through financial services, that kind of winner takes most is now really starting to play out in financial services too. So you can see that with, let's say, some of the US investment banks. They're now of a scale which is so much larger than anyone else. Their economics should be superior. And if you go back and do the analysis, at least certainly before financial crisis, cost of, cost of funding was, there was almost no difference between the big firms and the small. In fact, take Northern Rock, take Wami, some of the smaller banks were almost getting cheaper funding because they were seen as the growth engines. They got a cheaper cost of equity. So one of the key costs of ingredients, funding, didn't differentiate. And obviously in the world where there's still a lot of staff being employed across the business, it was the cost of humans. The more you go to fewer platforms, yeah. the more the scale matters. And I think when we come back to, you know, one of the conundrums is why are European banks worth so much less than US banks? Yes. And if you like, if you do it as of last week, so you get to a pre-financial crisis, European banks' market cap compared to US was 170%. Yes. Today, European banks to US banks is 55%. Mm. So dramatic inflation. And well, obviously we had shittier growth, we were slower to recover from the crisis. But some of this is actually our banks are at smaller scale. And actually, if you go back to it, that's a much bigger systemic issue for central banks to worry about. And that's a different department. But I, but I think that kind of winner takes most in, I think thinking through what does winner takes most mean in financial services, I think is really interesting. And, and let's be clear, the central bank regs from the financial crisis have tried to lean against big banks. They will have surcharges. And yet, if you look at who's got the best economics, it's, it's the top the two, two banks. The, so even despite all the regulation, um, all the surcharging, they've, they've, they, it's a moat around their business model, and it's hard for challenger banks to, to really compete. I think it's. I think look, there's always a case, and, and this is why, in a way, and this is why I brought up with crypto is why did one or two of those West Coast banks get their fingers burnt or getting overly excited by crypto, and one or two of them having some really 
singed fingers at the moment. It's because they weren't, you know, they needed to find smaller areas to grow. So look, I mean, I think this is a problem that, well, it's not a problem. This is a feature of all industries. Yes. What's striking is that it's now come to financials too. And looking at the UK challenger sort of neo bank area, like how how because obviously Monzo was running into quite a lot of trouble up until last year. Apparently their outlook is much better now. But um, is that just because interest rates are going up and they're going to get more margin? Is is it as simple as that? I, I haven't done the work not on them recently, so I, I, I I'm tough to make a specific point. But, but on the broader, yeah. No, like, will, will high interest rates help these like, oh. business models? Because of, will they get a better margin? So, depending what the asset liability mix, you know, yeah. so it depends, as ever in banks, it's going yeah, to depend. Exactly. But no, but um, having got, and you, Isabel, you wrote about this beautifully, that having now gone from through 13 years of zero, zero, and up, you know, finally we're going to get an increase in interest rates. And um, this is like manna from heaven for the banks. I mean, it's just incredible. Now, Obviously, there is a speed bump as interest rates rise. The value of your bonds you hold can fall, so your book value might fall. Um, and, you know, and if you look at the book values for some of the banks of last year, we'll come through, fell quite significantly. You know, and then two, you start to worry about what happens to bad debts because obviously history is as interest rates go up into recession blow up, and that's why some of the that's that uncertainty we. See. We started talking so about the short-term gains of higher interest rates will offset with credit deterioration. I think this varies country by country by country. At the moment, given the resilience of the economy, yeah. and I think we can all point to what it is, but some of this is, you know, the interest rates were unusually low. We've, got, we've still got savings from the pandemic, oh, sorry, an aggregate. Um, it's actually net very positive. But the bank stocks are telling you the market doesn't yet know, believe that. But no, I so say going back to it, for, for small and large, the strategic value of deposits is incredibly high. And it's in a way going back to where the world was before the financial crisis. Speaking of asset performance, you, you, you also are quite involved in the kind of financial services approach to climate um, transition. How has this year been for the, you know, ESG portfolios? Because, um, and from a central bank perspective, has it, like, most recently Powell has stuck um, very clearly to his point that he's not going to shift the Fed into a climate mandate, right? Yeah. Do you think that is fair? What's your view? Uh, so look, so central banks have to live within their mandate, yeah. you know, and obviously they can interpret financial stability in a fairly broad way, but they have to live within their mandate. So clearly, it's, it, it, it's you know they are not climate policy makers, nor is the Bank of England, nor is nor most of them. In the case of the Bank of England, there was a letter from the Chancellor to the FPC to look at climate, but that's a, that's a that's part of consideration. No, look, if I take a, take a step back, so. Um, you're right. Some of these ESG portfolios were bizarre. I mean, they, you know, um, and look, in the end, way, many ESG portfolios ended up being long tech, short oil and gas, which worked a treat for nine years and then didn't. And so, you know, they've underperformed. Um, I think we need to make a distinction between a couple of things. So first, um, one of the things I spent lots of time as an investment analyst focused on is how is the investment in industry changing? Yeah. And we talked about a sort of barbell. There's the, the, yeah, the, the, cheap, the cheap, cheap indexes, which are the core of your portfolio, and then some spicy, higher risk allocations. Could be private equity, could be property, could be hedge funds, could be concentrated equities, and you follow out the middle. So. The key question for me is, um, 
with these ESG portfolios, are you trying to replace the core? Or are you actually trying to say, as a satellite, would you like exposure to, I don't know, what's going on in energy transition? Would you like to play energy infrastructure? Would you like to have a lower climate portfolio? What you're finding at the moment is, stateside, the desire to put ESG in the core is fading. Uh, partly because the ETFs with an ESG tilt haven't worked, and at the end of the day, performance matters. Uh, and so it's playing out as if it was a kind of pro-cyclical appetite. On the way up it worked, on the way down it didn't. But, but, uh, but, but I think the satellites, yeah. what I'm seeing is they're still quite sticky. So if you say, look, I want to allocate to water security, it may or may not work as a trade. Your investment manager may or may not have a good process, may not get lucky and make much shrewd bets. But that kind of sense of, you know, this is an investment theme I want to play. Like everything in life, you don't know until it's proof of the puddings and the baking. You know, I, I think actually those satellites have proven quite sticky. And so most of the ESG outflows are actually from the kind of the core replicants, which didn't really work out. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I would agree with you. I think that makes sense. Like, you want to sprinkle your ESG at the fringes as your, like, you know, your, your, your position on black or whatever and on a roulette table, right? But, oh, going Hopefully it's it. better than that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> 50, 50, I'm not sure of the odds on, on a roulette table. But um, the... But your core has to be focused on returns. And I think the, the reason I criticise the ESG sort of movement a little bit is because I think they missold that to average uh, sort of asset. I, yeah, the asset management industry was sort of bought this, they, they bought this narrative that you could have your cake and eat it with ESG. And I think that was disingenuous. And I don't, where was that, who was pushing that like message? Where do you think it came from? Because that messaging undermined its legitimacy in a sad way. And it made it very pumpy dumpy. In my, like, I wrote a piece not long ago sort of comparing the fundament, like the investment um, trends to, to like crypto. Because you're putting your money in something based on belief only and short term returns based on capital allocation. Like everyone throwing capital from one substituting from X to Y, obviously that's going to go up in, in capital valuation, but long term, is it sustainable, ironically, in, in a yes, cheap portfolio? Well, look, as you and I both know, the investment world is so wide and deep, it's yeah. difficult it's to try generalize, and but... generalise. And, you know, if I also go back, you know, you asked me to talk a bit about history earlier on, um, my summer job of my second year at uni yeah. was working for an ethical fund manager in New York, trying to screen out drugs companies and, uh, and, and, and defense companies. Yeah. So the desire for sort of ethical investments has been there for a long while. And if, if, if someone wants to invest in a particular way, that's fine. Yeah. There's no, you know, and, and actually, what's been really interesting, I've got so much to do some work for me about in the washout of ESG in the last 12 months, mm. those firms who, let's say, a decade were known, or between five and 10 years before, were known as ethical investors, mm. have had almost no outflows. Oh, interesting. So again, the, the heritage brands are working. It's the Johnny Come Lately's, which, Obviously, someone, if they only got into ESG two years ago and then they got whipsawed by well, tech exactly. selling off and it's been, un, it's been pretty unpleasant. So I think, so that's, so you come into it, no, look, um, I think there's a genuine, there's a genuine part of this, which is, you know, we should think about how we vote. We should think about diversity. Some of these things should be signals about a well-run company. And I, I think my time as analyst, you know, if there was a bank where... I don't know, uh, they didn't have the right capabilities at the Exco level, that was a, a red flag. I always found that yeah, if the finance director couldn't answer me a numbers question in his head, or his or her head, I always took that as a black mark against a bank management, but that's different from me too. But 
Um, for some, come back to this point about the, the barbell, ESG was a way for active fund managers to try and seek to charge more for a portfolio against an ETF manager. Yes. And probably one of the single most interesting, interesting conversations I've had recently is with a couple of the large custodians saying, we want to go back and look at what is the right price point for ESG portfolios, because we're really worried that if they're not doing something different, but they're charging seven times more, is that appropriate? And so I go back to this point, if it's a specialist manager, I'm hesitating desperately to not mention names, but there's some wonderful people who've done all in, you know, companies of, of, who are really focused on a specialist portfolio, mm. that's fine. And then we can work out, did they or didn't they achieve their investment returns? But it's the more general, the broad brush, broad brush yeah, which yeah. is struggling. That's really interesting. Of course, the whole point of ESG, I mean, if you believe the narrative, is that we withdraw, withdrawing investment from the bad companies that don't follow the ESG um, rules or, or um, get the right metrics on ESG scores. Um, we will help the transition to uh, a better future more quickly because the bad guys won't get the cheap funding. But I wonder, is there a sort of adverse, uh, not adverse selection, but like some sort of unintended consequence? of doing that because when you think about the real vice industries like the drugs illicit drug market I mean nobody's like there's no portfolio company investing in, in drug firms right um, yeah. it's uh, and yet it keeps going so we pulled as much funding as we possibly could from like you know heroin markets it hasn't stopped them because if the product is fundamentally profitable um, it will continue on as a as an industry yeah. and so are we you know by pulling all our money out of, say, fossil fuels, are we just allowing, you know, the countries that have less prudent sort of uh, policies to take over these industries and, and, and run them even more, you know, fiercely than we've been running them? To the so, so, okay, so it's a great question, but there's lots of different structures to it. So I'll, I'll try, and I'm going to fail probably to answer the question. So, so one. Virtue has a price. There's a beautiful paper by Cliff Asnes of AQR, probably about four years ago, where he really unpicks to say, look, you know, uh, if, the, if this works, it's because you're trying to change the cost of capital for a firm. And if it doesn't, then what are you doing? Yes, you know, exactly. so, and so as a result, a, a, a vice portfolio should return more than a virtuous one, in his view. That said, Cliff also, AQR has set up an ESG screen to their portfolios too. So at some level, there is a, 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 something to it. So, so I think that's right. So point two, you, you talked. Let's take only fifteen percent of oil and gas majors are the Shells, BPs, Exxon's, and Chevron's. Eighty-five percent are state-owned enterprises elsewhere. And so it's very. If we say that Western banks exclude, and it depends what we exclude, but try to defund majors, well, the business is also going to go to banks off grid. And so I think what's the pennies really dropped. I think it was already there, clear for some people, but the pennies dropped in the more into the mainstream. A contentious conversation has now become a mainstream conversation that um, paper portfolio decarbonisation does nothing for the real world. Right. Simply excluding doesn't really help. If we don't get actually, if we don't think about engaging and thinking about standards and also being realistic about what energy security needs, we're not going to achieve anything. And so I've done a, also continue to do a lot of work with G fans and so forth. And you know, like any new initiative, it gets some things right and some things wrong. But if you think about it, the underlying economics, is at the moment there's roughly speaking one dollar of capex on green renewables to one dollar of capex on 
existing fossil fuels or maintenance capex. The aspiration is that that might go to four to one by 2030, but that needs to come as much from incentives to invest in green as it is from trying to turn things off. And that's why, in a way, I think you and I are quite intrigued by does the Inflation Reduction Act, no, does, the, um, does, EU, does EU retaliate with green subsidies and so forth? Yeah, so because uh, this was the message from Davos again, that, that like subsidy wars, if they're green, they're okay. Like, green subsidy wars are fine. Well, that, that, as one economist put it, green subsidy wars are the least bad type of trade wars you're going to have. Right. Because they, they ought to be self-limiting because the money eventually runs out. And the, you get, there might be, again, there might be some wastage, but there's some good kit. Yeah, which comes good productivity benefits, which comes at the end of it. Oh, look, look it's, it's a hope. I mean, I think what look, I think Europe has been very naive about energy security. Energy mm. security hasn't really been a major issue for a decade. And going back to we were chatting before about you know, um, you know, Hugh Hendry likes to talk about when does a contentious narrative become a mainstream narrative? Energy security has now become the mainstream narrative for policymakers. And I, what I think is really interesting is that for any time in the last 25 years, we would go and ask a climate campaigner what to do and they'd say, carbon tax. And this was the mainstream view of the Dems in the States, the most left-wing politicians in Europe too. And actually the, the, the thing which has then yeah, got through the, the Congress, the, the Houses in the States, was um, to actually not say it's a penalty, but actually it's a subsidy. And I think in Europe, we still probably too have almost too much that we want to tax the bad, I think we should also incentivize the good to accelerate the transition. Right, exactly. And um, I mean, so one argument I've been uh, putting forward is that that is ultimately how we created what was briefly the world's um, richest man, Elon Musk, because yeah. he essentially he rode the uh, subsidy train for a very long time. Yeah. And we essentially handed him all this power and wealth, and now he's using that for his own effective altruism in uh, supporting Twitter, right? Um, but I. Um, but in a way, you could argue. I mean, I, I, look, it's it's, a, it's, a, it's contentious, but that that those subsidies really have helped catalyze an EV revolution around the world. In fact, let's be honest, most European companies only got there through market cap envy that, uh, of, of what you know Elon had created. And I mean, this feeds into the Mariana Mazzucato theory that the state has to have play some role in sort of tipping the paradigm. Totally. Otherwise, it won't get tipped in, 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 a, progr in a progressive way at all. Um, but do you think there may be some unintended consequences that we haven't yet seen? I mean, to be cliche, what are the blind spots here, if, if there are any? Especially with the Inflation Reduction Act. The, the law, law of unintended consequences is a very, is a very strong one <laughs> in history. And, uh, you know, it's going to... Uh, um, I think we're still feeling our way through what it means, um, but obviously, uh, one, the most obvious one is: does that mean Europe unforms or some of the allies unform because of this? But I think, in a way, the, the way I've been thinking is: how is energy security changing the economics of both the tilt between renewables and fossils? Yeah. But also, has it changed globalization? Has it changed trade wars? In, in, a, in a way, these are well beyond just pure. These are macro as much micro questions, but but get coming through. Well, uh, take one example. Um, 
So you would have thought that the IRA should actually help the asset values of all the renewable companies in the States. And obviously for solar, at least two of them have really outperformed in the last 12 months. I, I know of at least three private equity deals in the States where the IRA has actually led to a price fall because people say, well, look, this company I'm buying is highly dependent upon Chinese rare earths to create the entity. Gosh, if I'm now learning we're not going to produce the ones onshore in the US for some years to come, and if there was a trade war, an intensified trade war, what would that mean for security of supply? So there's a, but that's a, that's a pricing issue maybe rather than a... That is interesting though. So I remind, I mean, this is one of the, I've written for a long time about this weird phenomenon in solar, where like over 90% of the wafers are made in China in, uh, you know, in, in, by Uyghur labor. Yeah. A, it's very <laughs> immoral labor, but B, it's also, we suspect mostly uh, fueled with coal-fired power. Yeah. And yet, I think the energy mix that assesses the carbon footprint of, of, of solar panels doesn't often account for that. And, um, you know, does that even make sense that we're, you know, making these solar panels, which last maybe 15 years, with coal, the dirtiest fuel, you know, out of China, um, does it all, is it a wash? Like, to what degree, I mean, I, I, I just sometimes think the, um, these sort of um, questions are, are kind of skirted over and, and overlooked. Well, well, look, so this is, this is, I think it's really complex, um, and it depends what you're trying to solve. So my, my, my late father's a doctor, but passionate about, um, 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 yeah, causes of asthma and public health. And so he did a lot of work around how people downwind from uh, polluting plants end up having a lot of asthma. As a GP, he discovered this and so he spent a lot of time researching it. It's all obvious, but so let's say um, up until very recently, the EU didn't really like gas. Oh, sorry, I apologize. Certain countries didn't like gas. Um, the EVRD obviously was making loans to, let's say, Almaty. Two-thirds of kids in our central Almaty have lung disease. And so turning off the coal and replacing it with gas is hugely important from a public health point of view, irrespective of any climate metrics that we know that gas is, I don't know, one-fifth of the you know, uh, dirtiness of coal. And so I think we need to be very clear about what are the public policy issues we're actually trying to solve and i think there's a, yeah, a much more complex and nuanced debate than than the than the you know the activists understandably say because they want to just because just going cold turkey might be system as much of a system shock as transitioning through nat gas which is fundamentally like better for many countries Turkey. and i think even in the uk we were seeing huge um, improvements by with our transition in through nat gas and with the net, net zero um, policy we've, we've and with russia and gas sanctions and everything we're slightly, you know, we're reverting to coal. It's, it's insane. Uh, uh, yeah, reverting to coal in Germany, Austria, whatever. Yes, but let, let's indirectly, say. we are also being exposed to that because we are interconnected uh, into Europe, right? So. But, but you can see then well, that's why with the various net zero alliances, the banks, the asset managers, the asset owners, actually getting the framework right is yeah. proving very difficult. And yeah. in a way, if you like, the, the, the most fundamental challenge to the GFAN and so forth is you shouldn't all use the same framework. Yes. Because right, it's like A is antitrust, but B, there's no one perfect way through. The world is in, immensely complex. The pathway in Holland is different to the pathway in Nigeria to the US, and, or even, even in any different states in the US, like in the 50 different states. And so I think a lot of the work I'm, I've been spending some time on is thinking what, how should the framework, what's a bespoke framework look like? Yeah. And, and it's tricky because finance should be the servant of the economy. Yes. But 
and it's thinking therefore about what's the right risk-adjusted returns. And what's been very striking is now the deeper people get into it, the more complex people realise it is. But also you get some very odd quirky things. So if I, let me give you an example if it's not too 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 nerdy. So when we did, um, so one of the things I worked on with Mark is climate stress tests for the banks. So again. 30-odd countries around the world have basically copied that blueprint that the bank uh, we, we created. Um, so at one level, as Stuart Kirk notoriously said, it gave most people a kind of a, a pass. Mm -hmm. But what it's done, though, is as you take, I don't know, let's call it climate risk into the heart of the risk management engines, it starts to reveal some interesting things. So most Western banks would say physical risks are going to be in hurricane regions. It's Florida, it's Massachusetts coast, it's California coast, the Dom Toms. But it's not really going to be an issue for the core, yeah. I say, Germany. With the droughts last summer, talk to a German bank now, they're worried that actually could some farms go bust this year if they have a second year of no water. Right. So actually physical risk is actually something which they thought was 20, 30 years out, is there, whereas transition, whereas other risks are way further out. So I think, I think, look, just like I always think as an investment analyst, you want to get, you want to make smart bets and get the right data to help inform, improve your odds. And I think that the focus on, I don't know, decarbonisation in the economy, understanding the different pathways is making finance helping for that to making slightly smarter bets. Of course they're going to get times wrong because that's the history of the world, but it's, it's at the margin it's helping. Did you get to meet Greta at Davos? I didn't, uh, no. Because okay. I, I, I know she was there after being arrested. Um, I don't know, I just, I think it's, it, it is weird that the financial sector should be, um, obviously Greta has started a movement all very well, but she's, she did, apparently she didn't spend too much time at school, so I'm not sure if she's really the person to be, you know, guiding how the financial industry allocates. Oh, but, but I don't think, I, so this, so I, I, but I don't think she is though. So I think where, as GFANS is going from its, well, it's still an adolescent, doesn't it? It's, in, yeah. it's only been yeah, going yeah. for 18 months. The, I mean, the net zero asset owners have been going for a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, there are lots of different things going on here. I mean, if it's just saying, can I understand decarbonisation pathways and what that means for the economics of, oh, I know, I'm lending to a pool of diesel, a fleet of diesel cars, probably needs to be smart about that. Now, you and I would say a good credit analyst should understand the top factors for any given sector, and therefore it should have been happening anyway. Yes. But having a bit more focus on this is, is not such a bad thing. Obviously, but I think there are there are two things. But she you, was doing a panel yeah, with yeah, yeah, Fatih Burrell and you know the IEA, and he's like essentially, as far as I can see in the body language, conceding to all her points and not pushing back. And get, I, I find that bit, I, I find that a bit silly. Like, great, she's an advocate, um, but you need to um, also allow the sort of serious grown-up voice. Oh, no, to... but, but 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 I think what's so in a way that you know. That, that what you what the newspapers picked up as like some of the US firms getting a little bit frustrated with G fans mm -hmm. in a way I think is actually showing the maturity of the discussion which is when you've started to do the work on risk mm -hmm. maybe reputational risk is actually a bigger impact than physical or transition risk because you're worrying about what does this mean for my for the reputation of the institution and yes. I think you and I know as well as well 
for many Gen Zs, this is a really critical issue to get employed. Um, I have a friend who runs a logistics company, which is one of the most circular in the world, and they rebranded. And from before to now, their increase for uh, their applicant per job post on LinkedIn has got 51-fold as they rebranded. So it's a, it's a and you know, so it's, it is a really big issue. But you know, for a major bank, what we need to think, or an financial institution, we need to think about. What's the investment problem? What's the risk reward? What are the factors? And understand yeah. and don't dissect it. And understanding decarbonisation pathway. It, given, let's say, the IRA, given these huge shifts in public policy, yeah. being a bit savvier about that's no bad thing. Which is different, I think, from maybe slightly more the naive being beholden to the activists, which I think was, you know, was well, happening a few years, has been happening. I think it's certainly, I mean, now, with the hindsight of the Ukraine war, um, it does feel a little bit like it fed the hand of Putin um, because, you know, who benefited the most from us being energy um, fragile? Because it, it was, it, he took advantage of that, it's quite clear. So, well, we, do, do probably def do, do, yeah, nuclear was probably the biggest mistake. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So th that's a good point to um, pivot into this other topic that I wanted to talk yeah. to quickly touch upon. So Zoltan Poser of uh, Credit Suisse has been putting forward this Bretton Woods three ideas. It's people either love it or they hate it. It's Marmite. Um, the kind of professional uh, rates uh, community is very disparaging of Zoltan. I think they and, and there is a huge. Uh, community of people who believe the dollar will uh, persist and persevere, right? Which I, I, I also agree. I'm just wondering, what is your view? Are we moving into more of a multipolar, um, you know, currency world? Um, will the dollar be dispossessed? How are these, you know, how are we going to navigate around sanctions and what I have termed like the end of dollar neutrality? To, I'm not, you know, I don't want to suggest the dollar was always neutral because there's always been um, some sort of uh, boundary and limitation on who can and cannot use dollars, but but by and large, I think it's fair to say the dollar was the most neutral currency out there. That confiscation risk is now a real concern, especially in the BRICS countries. Yeah. How is that going to play out? So, uh, look, so uh, I, I'm probably, uh, so, look, Dalton's thesis has got many, quite a few different aspects to it. I'm afraid I'm on the Very whole, I'm, I, I'm probably still more in the camp of that the dollar remains pretty much dominant. Uh -huh. Now, let's let's unpick this because it's a big question. Let's say, so one question which is in there is, what happens to central bank reserves? Right. The vast majority of central bank reserves or some wealth funds uh, are still anchored to dollars. And so if at the margin a couple of points went away from dollars to renminbi or euros or what have you, it's not a big deal at the moment. Right. Obviously, we could argue if China stopped buying US debt, that's a major issue. Mm -hmm. But obviously the recycling of petrodollars, particularly in the Middle East at the moment with the high energy prices, if you look at what's happening, they're still very largely going back into dollar-based assets. And I think part of this was going to be a macro question. What's the performance of Europe versus the US? How will emerging markets do? For the moment, the US remains pretty robust, and hence why it was on that sort of wrecking tour last year. But I don't see a profound switch yet, a large enough switch from reserve managers to make a big difference this yet. I mean, maybe over the course, it might take decades, but I don't think it's a big enough deal. I mean, part of that story um, is the CBDC story. So I think Zoltan. Perfect. Well, I'll yeah. get one yeah, more. Yeah, as well. right, right. Let's go crazy no, with the yeah, coffee. Yeah. 
much coffee. No, that's fine. Uh, so one Americano and one Macanto. Um, so part of Zoltan's thesis is actually that CBDCs will play em like the Enbridge project um, uh, between China and Russia. Um, but now this week we've also, this isn't necessarily CBDC, but we've seen this announcement between Argentina and Brazil. Yeah. Um, Intriguing. I thought it was bizarre. I'm not even sure if it was an announcement. It looked like a like a journalistic source that um, said that they're going to be talking about it or announcing it later this week. But um, what do you think in terms of the technology argument and um, the idea that you will have a shift away at least from SWIFT or um, more collaboration between the sort of anti-dollar states, but the ones who um, maybe are not as aligned in the rules-based capitalist globalized system as uh, as the Western states. So, so, so I just go back to the data. Look, so could more money be recycled locally or, or within within their their own corridors? Absolutely. But there's just the weight, the sheer weight of money. I mean, the, the, even if the flow of funds tilted, the dollar still is pretty important. And I I don't buy the argument that Chinese CBDC becomes a more secure way to hold your money. It just doesn't. It feels a very. I'm not sure I, I buy the argument at all. And what, what what's your understanding of the sort of um, kind of the Russian uh, projects on the ground in terms of their own um, equivalents to CBDCs? Because they're moving ahead with with their own um, CBDC essentially. So, uh, so I haven't done the work on it. So I just you know I'm afraid as an investment manager learn to say if I don't know I don't know. No, I'll happily no, go and do the, I'll happily go and do the work. But. It's way better. Than people would pretend they know. No, so I think I think um, the concern when I speak to central bankers is that some of these countries will issue their CBDCs and they will become portable to. Um, so say here in the UK, if I am able to use the Chinese CBDC because I see it as a more resilient store of value than the Great British Pound, which has a yeah, well that's a different issue. <laughs> yeah, that's had a bit of a quirky period um, last. Uh, few months. I think that's the great fear, is that without there being any uh, regulatory boundaries on the use of, say, the E1, um, then will there be a moment where people just subtly transition to to using an alternative if there isn't a local equivalent, like a, a like a E pound, right? But even then, the argument isn't really for the E part of it, it's to do with uh, not, I mean, I, can't, I personally don't see that rationale, but that seems to be what I keep hearing. It's like, if we don't issue our own CBDC, you know, the Chinese will take over with the, you know. I, I really struggle with this argument. Me too. I mean, I, I mean, I, um, and, and look, but so, do you hear it? Yeah, 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 I have heard it, but probably more by the, 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 the crypto enthusiasts than by said. But when you go and meet reserve managers, and I, go, and I go to them, that this doesn't really come up. Now, uh, you know, if you go back to basics, would they like a slightly more diverse portfolio would they like to be slightly less beholden to one particular country yeah. sure in fact one of the tragedies is given the volatility of the pound the performance of the pound the pounds uh, waiting in a basket for reserve managers is probably going down right. because it's not being seen as it's not a G7 currency but it's not being seen as quite as a reliable store of value yes. so you know actually the vol of the currencies as matters as much as the rule of law and also look, we can all say we're all buying more gold but then gold has been confiscated too 
you know, think yeah. about. And so, it's, I think. What about it's, Bitcoin? So, 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 it comes down at the end of the day. It's like in the financial crisis. You know, a lot of my hedge fund fr friends were either going long Norwegian kroner or dollars to try and find yeah. a safe store of value, which was off grid. And the trouble is that we're all looking for it, but it doesn't. It's it's quite difficult to find something which is completely off grid. What What about Bitcoin? Um, you know much more about this than I do, as well. I I, I struggle to think that that's you know. Uh, look, it, it, it's possible. Yeah. But but then it comes down to well, do you remember your do you remember your keys? And uh, depends what scenario we're talking about. You know, when you're off grid, is it because we've also had some problems with electricity grid as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the um, when you know I've said this before, so I, I was privy to. Um, I was invited to some ambassadorial thing at the Russian embassy in 2017. Before we were still friends, just about. Yeah. And the Russian ambassador was super interested in Bitcoin. Like that was one of the premises of why we were invited there. So, and then I think they—I don't know whether it's gone anywhere—but they were definitely kind of toying with the idea of using Bitcoin for uh, payments with, with like with friends, like you know. Um, from an international reserve perspective, would Bitcoin ever really, you know, cut it as a reserve asset um, because of its volatility? Look, I, 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 I may be too black and white on this, but I just, I, yeah, as an institutional asset, I really still struggle to see it of any scale. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be individuals who, and enthusiasts who don't play it, but for an institutional asset allocator, I, I just don't get owning magic beans. <laughs> Yeah. Um, of course, the SMB has been quite exotic in its reserve um, yeah. management. Do you think, because they got a lot of uh, criticism for the losses they've taken in the last quarter, whatever, year, I guess. Um, do you think, I, I caught a panel at Davos where um, I think the justification was that um, it comes in the context of many years of profits. So yeah. do you think that's a fair... I, I haven't gone dissected the 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 the, the, year, the, sorry, the the last decade of returns completely. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're still in the money. But it comes back to you know what was the policy objective and was that the best way to achieve it? So of course they were trying to lean against the Swiss Swiss Swiss, Swiss yeah. appreciating too much against a basket of. Well, part of the problem was that they, they got too hard a peg, but against the euro and the dollar. And I think this softer peg now makes a bit more sense. But they were trying to ease the pressure for exporters. Um, it sort of worked. It had, it had a bumpy period, as we both know. Um, I think, I think um, I don't know who it was, but someone was saying that it had they not invested in all the exotic equities, they might have done worse. Like not, like they may have done even worse. So, um, But I wonder... Um, what do you think about this, um, par not paranoia, but some people are concerned about central banks ending up with negative equity. Do you think that's a fair? I don't, uh, don't worry about I've never worried about banks with negative equity because at the end of the day, they could, they can, well, so this is, it's great. they can print, they, they can continue to print money and as long as the government, the major government is standing behind them, they can work through. Now, obviously, you could argue this is a, a bit easier for a G20 country than some emerging markets. Yeah. And that's when you then get a run on emerging market currencies. And this is the thing about, which we haven't picked up today, is, is you know, I think one of the most important things being an investment analyst is going through economic history. So uh, I, I did, um, uh, during the financial crisis, I used to moan about banks going bust. Yes. And I'd have a, 
you know, being told about, um, well, we haven't had a bank go bust in the UK since 1866. We go, well, yeah, but it then happened. Um, from 1771 to uh, financial crisis, there have been over 150 bank runs around the world on the IMF database. It just happened that almost all of them happened in, in the emerging markets, or Hong Kong, including Hong Kong. Oh, and maybe how you define it, including yeah. develop, fairly developed markets like yeah. Hong Kong, Korea. And so I think that we um, sometimes learning the lessons from emerging markets and the humility one gets from that about the institutional structure would probably do us a bit of good. Probably would it be, actually, if you think about what the economic performance of the UK post Brexit, learning from the EM toolkit would actually be pretty helpful to understand what, what's going to go wrong. But I guess the concern of negative, well, Russell Nat Napier yeah. has argued that we have the power to regulate demand, domestic demand for bonds, right? So, yeah. uh, worst case scenario, we just force pension funds to allocate even more to uh, gilts, right? Um, but, but hang on, but on that, isn't it, isn't it the biggest surprise to me is the government hasn't started issuing more national savings? Yes. It's yes. bizarre. If you like, think about what, given the, the shit show we had with, with trust, why, why, you know, the lesson from Italy, and this again goes back to learn from others, Italy and Belgium have internalised their debt stacks through national savings. Why are we not issuing tons more national savings? The banks have got uh, massively more deposits than they had pre-pandemic. Unbelievable the government hasn't tried to tap that yet. I, um, I keep referencing the idea that Neil Collins has uh, floated, which I really like. It's like, why didn't we just issue a Queen Elizabeth sovereign perpetual bond? Brilliant idea. Um, could even make it an NFT if you had to. Um, <laughs> oh, please not. But, <laughs> but, like, what a great idea. Like, who wouldn't buy a perpetual sovereign Elizabeth bond? Yep. It'd be brilliant. Um, great way to, to finance this transition period, um, which is Nouriel Rubini's argument. He's, you know, poly crisis. That was a big word in Davos, oh, right? Which yeah. sounds like a disease. But <laughs> it was, but you know what? I'm not, I, I, but it's not. The thing is, though, uh, for a con and I, I, I don't want to be rude, but, you know, for a co concept to be useful, it has to sort of then think, well, what's the framework behind it? What does it mean? Yeah. Just to say there's an awful lot of, you know, history's happening. You know, there's an awful lot of big events happening at the same time. I mean, again, if you go through history, I mean, I, I, I compared um, before, you know, is the, is the, let's say, the Inflation Re Reduction Act a bit like France going nuclear in 1974 with a mesmer plan? You know, what did that mean? I think there's a lot of parallels out there. But I think your point about national savings, though, is, is interesting that at turning points, it takes the institutional structure a long while to adapt and change their, conven their conventional wisdom. And I would be gobsmacked if we're not issuing lots more national speakers. If our funding costs were to remain high elevated, actually, the good news is they'd snap back in. But if they were to, then of course we would start issuing international savings. It's yes. just to take some time. It would make sense to. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's equivalent to the war bond. Or, um, but it, I'm just, I am surprised myself that we haven't done it. So I think that takes us to my last central banking question, yeah. what do you think about the BOJ at the moment and the challenges it's facing? Have you considered any... So, have you so considered I, I, I have not spent an, a lot of time on it. I mean, obviously, I've been concerned about negative interest rates and how all-in they were and that, that it works and works until it doesn't work. And I think that the challenge now of trying to end effectively yield curve control is coming to an 
end as is and maybe at some point the negative interest rate journey but I haven't spent enough time on it Isabella to, to give you a, a differentiated view but I guess because what I've seen you know personally I'm also not an expert on the BOJ but it seems to me like people are worried that there's going to be a buyer strike and if there's a buyer strike is it going to be like what we had in the UK and what are the consequences uh, in terms of you know the global financial order is Japan and Japan is still like a massive um, you know entity in the dollar bond market so um, it could tip the balance in unexpected ways is it from a minimum you know from, at a minimum do you think it's worth is it how, where would you rank it in what, let's finish on like outlook what yeah, do you yeah. think are the most important things we should be keeping Sorry. an eye on um, wow that's a, that's a big question I mean I think so, so if I go back to, to back to where we started I think what's peculiar at the moment is there are so many different major forces yes and so uh, I, I'm you know poly trying, crisis yeah, well, no, but there's different, no, but there's different <laughs> things going back and forth well look you know but Europe locked down, so inflation's coming down. I mean, there's a lot of actually constructive things. I mean, look, you know, you, you asked about a buy strike. I always think in life, I think the one thing I learned as an analyst is there's a price for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the times with, uh, with the bank recaps, I was surprised how they got done, but nonetheless, they got done because of the price for every asset, for every security. So, look, I do think um, the dislocation of policy in Japan could be very bumpy right. and could change the across lows, but eventually it'll find a level. The trouble is that if the level's been squeezed by a single central bank buyer, as it retrenches, it could be, you know, it's like the quintessential sort of um, ball underwater, it could come up pretty damn quickly as we, uh, and through. Now, in terms of what I'm worried about, um, I'm also, oh, one of the things I'm interested in, I'm really interested in how energy security redefines, um, you know, supply chains, um, cost, you know, what's the cost of energy? I mean, it takes a decade to put a nuclear plant in. Do, do we have elevated cost of energy? Does that mean that Europe goes through a lost decade because of higher energy sources? How many European firms move to the States? That really interests me. Uh, but also on the flip side, how you make money out of this theme? Are there, there's going to be a lot of the RA, and my, my assumption is that, sorry, my bet is that Europe will retaliate with green subsidies too. Uh, and therefore, there's going to actually be some really exciting ways to make money around the whole decarbonisation stroke and energy security themes. That, that's one area. And then on the bank side, look, I think it's interesting that the banks remain pretty cheap on the whole because my, everyone's worried that sales and trading and M&A has slowed and that the market's more worried about the potential pickup and bad debts than the increase in interest rate income. And I have to say, I, looking at, there's quite a few banks I think are actually reasonably interesting here with a more benign economic backdrop. If we do see the retaliation on subsidies, I mean, that's surely inflationary because it has to come from somewhere. And, you know, it's not just the UK that's cre- um, experiencing an NHS crisis, right? Yeah. So major, you know, healthcare is under, is, is currently under stress every, in most of Europe. So subsidies for renewables and green, it's going to come at a cost to healthcare. I can't see how or education or something else, right? Unless we have an inflationary burst. So I, th- I think the answer, so, so I think it depends. I mean, so, so uh, look, if we'd had this conversation 12 months ago, you, oh, sorry, you would say yes. But at the moment, um, energy costs are quite elevated. So anything you can do to try and bring them down is, is even if it's over a couple of years, it, is, it could be helpful. But two, because we've lucked out on a warm winter, even though it might be you know, for the wrong reasons, uh, for reasons we'll worry about long term, um, uh, that's given European countries.
countries more fiscal space. So now, put the UK to one side, which has got its own special case of misery. I mean, we are the, uh, uh, you know, for, for reasons which we can talk about <laughs> another time. You know, but for Europe on the whole, there is more fiscal space. Actually spending more, even if it's on a focused way, maybe we go all in on domestic EU minerals and uh, offshore power. If you just do those two things, that could be very helpful for what is at least, at least a very sluggish economy at the moment. So you see it as being a potentially a productivity boost for the economy? I think it's one of these things. It yeah. I think it's it's too macro. We almost need to go almost like country or country. But I think it, in the long run, it's, it, it could help. But look, at the moment, Europe is so much more expensive than elsewhere to produce that European industrial companies are going to get priced out. Yes. So what, whatever we can do to, to get on top of energy costs will be helpful. And my last, last outlook question is yeah. obviously crypto has... Um, imploded yep. in the last year do you do you think because Bitcoin's now coming back up again um, but the FTX scandal how big of a uh, regulatory issue was it from the European perspective do you think this will be the moment now that regulators act or do you think they will stand back and go actually if we act we might uh, overact then we might in inadvertently legitimise the sector because that seemed to be the, the concern like if we regulate it there's there's a certain element of legitimization that comes with it. Okay, so so, uh, uh, so uh, two, two points. I mean, first, if we had just enforced current regs, if we had done a money laundering check, and I know you're a customer check, I would have thought we'd actually would have rooted out quite a lot of the, the bad stuff that's happened. Um, you know, two, uh, the new financial system is just learning that the reason what the old what some of the what the old financial system is like how you, how you prove resilience, why you why you have stress. <laughs> Test. I mean, it's it just funny to watch oh them basically learn everything we've already been through, but like in a faster way. But it's, well, it's also quite tragic they didn't learn too, and I'm afraid if you go onto this, the stablecoin sector is still having to learn a lot of lessons, and the stablecoins are not yet there. I mean, there's yes. still plenty of lessons. But, th but the third bit is, look, um, I actually think if you, if you argue the major central banks, particularly you know the US re sorry, US regulators, yeah. try to dissuade the major banks from letting crypto into the into the major banks, and on that they succeeded. What's going on at the moment with Silvergate and some of the other smaller West Coast banks is leaving a very bad stain on crypto, an, un, an unregulated crypto system inside a, uh, inside a bank. And I think that, in a way, I wonder if Silvergate has a bigger impact than FTX in the longer term of the way that the because regulators they, think. Because they were a regulated bank, right? So um, Jamie Dimon might still be proven right. I think he reiterated his like Bitcoin is um, overhyped up rubbish, um, but blockchain's quite quite interesting this year. Um, but yeah, no, so that's interesting. So you think they will be forced to act to stop the banks getting even more crypto curious than some of them have already been? I think it will lead to a, a really big pause. And yeah, on that note, I think unless I'm going to give you the last word, Hugh, what do you think is, is something we may have a blind spot or something that you're watching that we haven't, you know, covered? Gosh. Um, 
Um, I mean, uh, there's so many other quirky things what's out you, there. What are, you, what's, what are you currently passionate about, apart from everything? Is there anything else? Oh, so, so, well, sorry, sorry. Uh, one thing which we didn't talk about, which I'm interested in, is, is how, um, with good intentions, Europe's trying to create a set of green financial policies which are backfiring. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, the, the, I don't know, fund it's called taxonomy to try and work out what, almost like a, a purist first principles view of what's a good investment, yes. which they jammed into fund regulations. At the moment, the last time I checked, $145 billion of funds are being reclassified from the purest of pure, Article 9, to the less pure, Article 8, because no one can make sense of the rules. And I think it's a quintessential thing of creating a overly complex first principle set of regs which just don't work in practice. That's that's interesting to me, because at the end of the day, uh, you know... Why did that happen, though? Because you've you've been, like, behind poli like policy decision-making. Like, how does that complexity weave itself into the system? Um, I think it's... I think it's partly the way the sausages are made in Europe that it, they are. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes fudge. Mm -hmm. I think two is what you know. One of the benefits of let's say US or UK system is that there is a lot. You know, 90 days to go and put comment letters in to say do the regs work in practice. So when the SEC said I want everyone to disclose scope three, a whole bunch of smart people go, well, do you know what? It's not yet fit for purpose for a CFO to sign off for he or she to sign off on because it's not. It's still a fuzzy concept. Therefore, I don't want someone to go to jail for signing off for something fuzzy. That comment period is something lacking, and I think in the way, and I think it goes back to something where also, but I think also goes back to something you said earlier on, which is at least around a lot of the green debates, the activists had a bigger share of voice, mm. and the financial community had almost no share of voice. And I think that the green taxonomy, I think, speaks to something which was in, actually, in principle, not a bad idea. But it then became too detailed, too codified, too binary to yeah. actually work for a portfolio. And I think this goes back to this thing that at the end of the day, you know, what you write about brilliantly is that, you know, money, the flow of capital is everything in the economy. And I think that humility of understanding the, you know, the law of unintended consequences is, remains, you know, one of the, you know, why we like reading your stuff. And I think just to wrap it up, I think that, that you know, I, Davos is getting a lot of uh, hate at the moment, but um, I would say that is the one useful thing about Davos is that you do have some sort of forum where you can hear these other perspectives. And I think the people who criticised, and I'm critical of Davos, but in a different way. Like, I just think it's so overly consensus-oriented that very, very rarely they're ahead of the curve. I think they're usually following the trend and or, like, it's, it's an exercise for people to catch up on things. But I, I guess people who are really important live in their bubbles and they need to be exposed to other people. Um, but it's rarely the place where, where new trends are made. Um, they're kind of following the trend. But that is why it is useful because people don't get out their bubbles outside unless they have that sort of exposure to different sectors. So do you do you think Davos will persist? I mean, what's your like? Because it did get a lot of. I mean, it always gets stigma, but I think there's something changed this year. Like Politico, lots of people have been set, like. Yeah. Uh, look, I think, look. A conference has to remain. Has you to can keep. Be diplomatic. No, you, you have to keep. Look, in life, you have to keep reinventing what you're doing and what you stand for as a, as a way to, to meet a very large number of people quickly is a speed dating exercise is unbelievably efficient and B it's great in terms of picking up you say a diverse set of views I think one of the challenges that all conferences are finding 
is um, to maintain the cost. There's been a lot of inflation, so the prices have been jacked up. I heard Bill Bratton. Bill, and Bill said, no, and right, Bill, you know, Bill, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's right. It's going to cost him a quarter million dollars. That's extraordinary. Like Elon, so I, Elon Musk is charging eight dollars for Twitter, but, but Klaus Schwab has to like charge So, so I, I think, I think yeah. ensuring that. So go back, go back to what you're saying, which is, you want to ensure there's enough uh, diverse voices yeah. being listened to, so it's not just the mainstream voices. Yes. And the more the prices go up, the more you squeeze out the diverse voices. So that's for me at the heart of any good. Of, it's almost like a, any good dinner party. Yeah, you want to you you want to have a diverse range of people, and I think that's. But it is a bit of a two-sided market because like corporates pay, and then the politicians and like think thought leaders come for free mostly. But for what, this is definitely the last <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How many last then, questions? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, last last question. I remember. So when I went to Davos, I barely survived because it was so like meetings after meetings. It was a blur. How do you survive it? Like. Did you, did you have like coffee? How, lots of coffee. Is that, Live is that off a secret? Because I don't know how people make make get through that. Live off coffee, and then when you get invited to all the drinks parties, try say to no. say no or, 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 or stick to soft. And yet, Kristen Lagarde seemed to be everywhere. I don't know how she. I think there's three of her. Like she must be. She must have a body double because she was everywhere when I was there. At least that year. Maybe she's a bit a bit more uh, fatigued these days. Maybe. But well, I'd also walk a lot. I mean, you know, you end up doing twenty thousand steps a day. I know. So yeah. don't get the cars just keep walking and keep walking <laughs> anyway on that note thank you so much Hugh it's been pleasure. a pleasure thank you so much Isabella lovely stuff that was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska for more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality check out The Blind Spot at the-blindspot.com